You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the transit zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margo Kingston in Comboin, Regional New South Wales. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beerpai people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Our discussion today here in the Transit Zone is about the state of democracy here in Australia and beyond. Our guest is somebody who's experienced democratic politics from the outside as a lawyer, banker and journalist, and from right inside the corridors and back rooms of power, where the sausages are actually made, the 29th Prime Minister of Australia. From 2015 to 2018, Malcolm Turnbull. Mr Turnbull, welcome to the Transit Zone. Yeah, thank you very much. And um, I'm here in Sydney in Gadigal country. Thank you very much for coming on, Mr Turnbull. I'm thrilled to be interviewing my very first Australian Prime Minister. You've been very active in public life since your retirement. And I'd just like to know how you envision your role as a public figure now in helping shape Australia's future. Well, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a citizen of Australia. You know, I've always said that the most uh, important title in our country is not Prime Minister or Judge or Governor-General or anything like that. It's Australian citizen. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I don't think I'm that involved in public life, to be quite honest, Margot, but I, I do um, express my views from time to time and uh, I'm entitled to do that just like any other citizen. And I... I'm a strong I'm a strong believer and always have been in active citizenship. So, you know, history is made by those who turn up and if you if you don't speak up, if you don't seek to make a contribution or play a role, you can't really complain if uh, you know, your views are not taken into account. Well, here we go. ICCP report dire as expected, you know, those those fires that started in Australia, those, you know, those huge images in the sky now all around the world. The Prime Minister has said he's not going to change. Barnaby Joyce has said no to a net zero target by 2050. Broadly, what's the optimal position for Australia to take domestically and abroad on this existential matter? Well, we should look, we should be a leader. Uh, you know, I mean, we are a, a wealthy, developed country. Um, we've got to play our part. Uh, the proposition that because we're only, you know, whatever it is, one and a half percent of global emissions, therefore we shouldn't bother to do anything. I mean, that is, that's the worst argument. Uh, we, we have to play a role. Uh, we have very high emissions per capita. We're big exporters of fossil fuels. Uh, we have got to work towards a world where, as quickly as we can, where fossil fuels are not being used uh, to you know, generate electricity or, or indeed in any other processes. I mean, we've got to, you've basically got to, we've got to stop taking carbon and methane out of the ground and sticking it in the atmosphere. <laughs> That's what this is all about. Uh, and so we should be moving as quickly as we can. And, you know, the, the interesting thing, Marco, and this is, this has been a big change, say, in the, you know, 20 odd years that I've been you know, actively involved with these issues, is that we've gone from a world in which the cost of going green, of having renewable energy, was considerable. 
and and that's you know why you needed to have carbon taxes or carbon prices and you know obliging people one way or another to use renewables nowadays renewables are cheaper so so the the truth is we can now have abundant electricity abundant energy and at a lower cost now you've obviously got to plan the transition that's you know that's critically important and that's why you need to plan projects well ahead you know snowy hydro 2.0 being probably the best example of that in australia um but we can do it you know so so it's not a it's not a question you know remember when barnaby joyce was was going on about you know hundred dollar or two hundred dollar lamb roasts and you know all the terrible things the carbon tax would do to australians truth of the matter is uh, the reason our electricity prices are lower today than they were a few years back is because of renewables. So you know that's the so that's so that so this is one of those very rare cases in life where you can have your cake and eat it too. Yet, Mr. Turnbull, there was Barnaby Joyce on R in Breakfast this morning, running that same line, trying to create a division between the regions and the city, talking about oh the windmills you wouldn't put those in the suburbs creating that sense of difference. Yet when I travel around Australia, and I have extensively, there are windmills, there are vast solar panels everywhere, not only big utility-grade ones, but on remote pastoral cattle and sheep stations. Just about everyone is using solar out there. So how long do you believe he can keep prosecuting that particular line? Well, I, you know, I suspect as long as he's alive. Um, and, you know, we all wish him a long life. Um, you know, Barnaby is irrepressible, but uh, the reality is you, you, that you're right. Uh, in rural and regional Australia, renewable energy is delivering jobs. I mean, I'll give you, and I'll give you a practical example of this. Um, when Tony Abbott was elected uh, in 2013, he was committed to abolishing the renewable energy, well, he, I don't know how firm the commitment was, but it was certainly his intention and that of his, you know, his friends and admirers uh, in the business world to abolish the renewable energy target or to at least scale it back considerably. Now, we ended up reaching a compromise. Um, there's quite a bit about this in my book, as I recall, but there's a there's a compromise. We've got a compromise. It was it was toned down somewhat, which was not not unreasonable because the target was probably uh, higher than it needed to be. But interestingly, the pressure that came to do a deal uh, and actually affirm reaffirm the renewable energy target and the period of uncertainty did enormous damage, by the way, to renewables because people didn't know what the rules were going to be, and so they held off investment. But the pressure came from regional MPs. I mean, you know, there were people like me and, you know, others. Greg Hunt was was certainly on my side in the Cabinet at that time, you know, arguing that we needed to, you know, maintain the RET. But I remember Dan Tian, who was the member for Wannan, still is, uh, Western Districts of Victoria, and he was just saying, look, you know, we've got a lot of wind farms in this district. There's more that can be built. These, the farmers like them because they get rent from the wind farms. Uh, they, you know, generate jobs. Uh, and and it was, it was, and there were there were others too. So you know, this proposition that that regional Australia 
wants to keep on building coal-fired power stations is just rubbish, absolute rubbish. You know, in that Upper Hunter by-election recently in New South Wales, um, the own, literally, apart from the Green, the only candidate that was not advocating or not supporting, you know, unconstrained, continuous, uh, open-cut coal mining was Kirsty O'Connell. Who, who was an independent who nominated at the very last minute and Lucy and I and some others, uh, you know, supported her insofar as we could. And, you know, she did quite well, really, given all of that. But, you know, there is a, the, the reality is that the National Party has sort of morphed into an, a, a, a party that's determined really to defend the fossil fuel industry. They don't, they don't defend farmers anymore. I mean, you know, Matt Canavan's great boast is that, you know, he's he's a passionate coal miner. George Christensen's much the same. Um, you know, uh, Joyce, I mean, what's Joyce done for farmers recently? I mean, the reality is that, that coal mining in, um, you know, high quality, you know, high product, high, highly productive agricultural areas has done enormous damage. Um, so you know, it's it, it's basically that they've basically been captured uh, by the mining sector, and and I mean that's that that that's that's not they just they should call themselves the you know political wing of the uh, mineral resources council or something. So I suppose I can see why the Nats are split. Like really interesting, Malcolm, that the Victorian Nats are desperately trying to distance themselves from the Northern Nats because their people are farmers and rely on agriculture. But with the Liberal Party, I remember when Andrew Peacock took the first ever Climate Change Action Plan to the election in the late 80s, Dr Hewson was very strong on it in the early 90s. And then it's it's gone and, you know, a throwback to you because Abbott was so bad, but boy, oh boy, did you have trouble. And I saw this when I was reporting on the Howard government that the moderates, they've either left or they've been pushed out and it, it just doesn't seem that the liberalism part of the broad church, does that help explain the, the climate change evolution or, or is there another explanation? I think, I think that's part of it. You know, the, the liberal, there's not a lot of smaller liberalism left in the Liberal Party. You know, that's the reality. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that is the reality. As far as the attitudes to climate, what's happened with climate policy, um, and you see it in the United States as well and very similar, uh, is that a combination of right-wing media, mostly owned by Rupert Murdoch, uh, right-wing sort of anti-science politics, um, and of course the fossil fuel sector, have basically succeeded in taking an issue that should be one of science and physics and you know pragmatic, practical approach to resolving the problem, and turning it into one of values and identity. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's ludicrous. Uh, the, the idea that you say, I believe or don't believe in global warming is like saying, I believe or don't believe in gravity. But, you know, you saw George Christensen in the House of Representatives yesterday basically saying COVID wasn't anything to worry about, masks did more harm than good. I mean, complete dangerous nonsense and the the rest of the house i think unanimously condemned him condemned him uh but 
that is that is a there is a constituency there, and it is a crazy populist constituency that is no longer reality based. And you see this in the U.S. I mean, just consider that a majority of people who vote Republican, uh, could, you know, thanks to Murdoch's Fox News and Trump and others, uh, believe, no doubt sincerely, that uh, Joe Biden stole the election. Now, you know, that's that we saw what that results in on January the sixth, but you know, there's there are people. You know, there are people in the US and no doubt some in Australia too who genuinely believe that um, they shouldn't be vaccinated, you know, that vaccines are bad. Well, and they, and then you get case after case. I mean, there was a sort of a right-wing shock jock, you know, radio host, COVID-denying, climate change-denying character who um, wouldn't be vaccinated, ended up in... Um, hospital in Florida, I think, and died. And, you know, his last remarks were saying that he wished he'd had a vaccine. Well, you know, that's that that's the... Th this is the loopiness of it. And, I mean, I, I think the fact that people are prepared to, to monetize it uh, is so shameful. I mean, look at Sky News here. Uh, YouTube, you know, kicked them off for seven days because they'd been promoting... Um, you know, falsehoods relating to the pandemic and COVID and vaccines. And, you know, they jumped up and down and said that was terrible denial of free speech. Uh, but they have also quietly removed a whole lot of these uh, clips from their site uh, because they know. I mean, that basically YouTube did the right thing. YouTube called them out in a way ACMA doesn't have the power to, frankly, and uh, certainly wouldn't have the political will to, and and that's you know that's good. I mean, we the, the, those people who deny the reality of COVID and undermine confidence in vaccination are doing enormous harm. You know, they're they're doing they're doing the same sort of serious deadly damage to public health that the conspiracy theorists have done to the democratic body politic with the lies about the 2020 election. Mr. Turnbull, I think we'll circle back a bit more to the whole role of media and Murdoch later in our conversation, but that's staying with the fossil fuel industry and how they have a squirrel group on so many members of parliament. On the outside, it's very hard to discern how that actually works. In our jokey moments, we say, oh, they must be paying the superannuation of all these people, or they've got some way of, of holding them in their thrall. You're inside the system. How does it work? How does the fossil fuel industry actually maintain their capture of these people? Well, they have, I mean, it, it, look, any big employer or big company is going to have, has going to have influence, right? They're going to get heard. Uh, I think in terms of financial contributions, um, there are a number of people in the fossil fuel sector who've been especially influential with the National Party. Uh, Trevor St. Baker, obviously one. Um, Gina Reinhart is another. Um, and there would be others, particularly in Queensland. I mean, I was, um, you know, I've been, I've raised plenty of money for the Liberal Party. Um, but, you know, I didn't, I don't think anyone suggested I was being influenced or capable of being influenced 
by that. And indeed, when we were a bit short in the 2016 election, I kicked the money in myself. So there are some consolations <laughs> with, with being, being able to put your money where your mouth is. But the, the donations are a big part of it. But there's just also, there's a, see, you, you've got to, people don't, I think, fully understand. I mean, you guys do, but a lot of people don't fully understand how integrated the media is with politics. And that right-wing ecosystem, you know, Sky News, Murdoch tabloids, 2GB, you know, rusted on uh, LNP, Liberal National Party voters, fossil fuel sector, and it just, it is a system. And so the people that are, you know, that are pulling the levers and are the main commentators on Sky and in the Murdoch press, they are as influential in that ecosystem as any member of parliament, probably much more influential than most of them. And what's happened is that as the media has become more siloed and as the particularly the Murdoch media has become, it's no longer really describable as news. You know, it is, it's basically propaganda now. People are essentially living in a bubble. You know, they're living in an information bubble, which is not necessarily or not entirely or consistently reality-based. I mean, again, I think in the United States, it's a more extreme version of this. Um, but, you know, that's clearly where we're heading. I mean, as I've said elsewhere, uh, Murdoch's, Murdoch has succeeded in monetizing the market for crazy. And it's done enormous damage to... Uh, Western democracy, particularly in the United States, less so here, but it's not through want of their trying. Coming back to the, the Liberal Party, now, true Liberals, progressive Liberals, believe that we need climate change action, as do the majority of, of Labor and, and all the Greens. So, so there is quite a substantial majority that wants action. And you tried three times, I think. And finally produced an egg which got the support of the Business Council of Australia mm. and the National Farmers Federation. So what I'm suggesting is it can't just be the media that has led to a situation where the, the branches seem to have been taken over by a hard right or a Christian right or whatever. And I noticed that leading moderate of my time, Ian McPhee, actually came out in Goldstein, his former seat, and said, progressives can't influence the Liberal Party now, so maybe you should think of an indie. So I'm just trying to mm. work out... Can true Liberals, can they strengthen their voices within the party still or is that complete, that takeover? Because you're talking about, you know, crazies, crazy policies and we've got a crazy climate change policy. So, so they're mm. controlling the majority who don't want it. Yes. Look, the, the reality is that the influence of the moderates is still uh, important, particularly in New South Wales, but in the federal party room it is much diminished. That's partly because of people, because, you know, leading figures on the moderate side are no longer there. Myself, Julie Bishop, Christopher Pine, to, you know, just named three of us. Uh, but, you know, they're three big, three, you know, prominent figures in the Liberal Party, um, no longer there. Uh, but I think the branches have become much more conservative. Uh, I think because people are living, a lot of pe people, many people are living in these um, bubbles of, of misinformation and, and craziness, uh, that, that makes things uh, 
uh, a lot worse. And I mean, you know, that gets quite extreme. You look at QAnon, for example. I mean, like it's it's loopy, completely and utterly crazy stuff. And yet, there are people who not only believed it, but it it um, you know compelled them to go and attack the U.S. Capitol on the sixth of January. So um, yeah, I think the party has the party has definitely moved to the right. Um, and that is a that's a real challenge. I think also culturally, the right uh, operate like terrorists. Now I hasten to add, you know, they're not using guns and bombs and so forth, but they operate like terrorists in this way that they are. And I've seen this so many times. They are prepared in a way the moderates have never been to say we will blow the joint up if you don't give us what we want. And they listen. They've done that. To me, a couple of times, uh, so I, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, most most of the people you've probably observed who commentate and talk about politics don't actually know what they're talking about. I do, <laughs> you know, I've been there, and uh, and so I'm speaking with the voice of experience, hard hard earned. And and why do they do that? They do that because they have, feel they're entitled, and they have the backing of that right-wing media ecosystem. You know, it's no accident that when, you know, Dutton was uh, prosecuting his coup in 2018, he had the active support of the right-wing shock jocks, of the Murdoch tabloids, of Murdoch himself. I mean, Rupert was trying to enlist Kerry Stokes in the efforts to uh, get rid of me, you know. It is, I mean, it is that, that they are players. I mean, this coalition government is not solely between the Liberal and National parties. You know, the Murdoch media are part of it. I mean, look at the shakedown of Facebook and Google. I mean, just think about that. The Australian government, uh, the parliament, in fact, because Labor, you know, certainly wasn't going to pick a fight with Murdoch, uh, they lined up, stood over Google and Facebook to do what? To give money to Rupert Murdoch and the other media groups, but by far the biggest check went to Murdoch. And when Facebook and Google were negotiating, you know, going back and forth on the terms of the uh, legislation and the deal, do you know who they were talking to overwhelmingly? Murdoch's lawyers. So, you know, so the Australian governments, you know, the, the... their great achievement here was to shake down Facebook and Google to give money to Murdoch. And do we know how much money Murdoch got? No. We don't know how much money the ABC or The Guardian or Fairfax got either, by the way, or nine. Um, it is, so, you know, it's, and, and, and there are no investigative journalists pursuing it, I notice, because, of course, they're all roped into it together. Mr. Turnbull, I want to dig further into the whole area of the media, not just about Murdoch, but the whole media ecosystem as we now see it. And I Mm -hmm. just want to be a bit nostalgic for a moment. I really enjoyed your memoir. And early on in the book, you describe watching and listening to your mother, Coral Lansbury, dictate episodes of that very popular radio serial, Porsche Faces Life. Now, that was was one of the serials. I used to press my ear. One of many that she wrote. Oh, yeah. But... I used to press my ear. I was a radio ranger in, in my kiddie days. I used to sit right beside the radio speaker and Porsche Faces Life, I think it used to come on mid-morning on the radio. But 
thinking back to those times of mass media and shared experiences with the media, that you know, Graham Kennedy, for example, most of Australia was watching him on the TV at night. Those days have gone, of course. And since the digital revolution, the media landscape's changed enormously. And only just over a decade ago, it's amazing to contemplate this, in its most pervasive form, social media came on the scene. It's transformed everything. Political propaganda, you just alluded to political propaganda, that's changed with it. We all know that Trump exploited his own Twitter account, almost like a broadcast channel, to the hilt. Has our media-saturated society, as the democracy scholar John Keane labels it, made the authentic practice of democracy so much harder, even these days impossible? Well, I'd hate to say it was impossible, but I think it has made it harder. Um, look, the, the problem is that we used to have a world not so very long ago uh, where outside of the magazine industry, which has always had specialisations, pretty much the rest of the media sector sought to obtain as broad a market as possible. Uh, and so you look at the newspaper business in Australia, for example, every newspaper sought to get a very wide audience. There are a few markets around the world, London to some extent, where newspapers catered to a particular point of view. But generally, everyone was following the line, you know, laid down in the first edition of the Sydney Morning Herald, I think in 1830-something, uh, where they said, 1831 I think it was, uh, where they said, um, uh, quoting Pope, Alexander Pope, in moderation placing all my glory while Tories call me weak and Whigs a Tory. Now that wasn't because the old Fairfaxes were especially politically broad-minded, but because they wanted to maximise their readership, because that would generate more advertising. And now what's happened is that a combination of um, te well, technology really has enabled narrow casting, uh, initially through subscription television, uh, then of course through the internet, and of course the cost of producing news is so much less than it used to be. I mean, l apart from the labour component, but you know, all of the you know, all of the kit, the cameras, the recorders, the lighting, everything is so much cheaper now. And so what's that, what, are, what that has meant is that you can basically, you know, choose your, own, choose your own news. Now, the problem is that at the same time, you've got publishers, Murdoch again being the best prominent example, who no longer take any responsibility. And, you know, this has always been a problem. There was um, Lord Beaverbrook, I think, who said to um, Rudyard Kipling many years ago, uh, described uh, the power that he had as a press proprietor as the prerogative of the harlot, power without responsibility. Now, I've never quite understood how the harlot got into that expression, and I think it's probably a bit tough on harlots, but it's memorable because of it. But the truth is that, you know, power, there is no such thing as power without responsibility. Um, and what we've seen is today you've got so-called news platforms, and again, Fox is good example, Sky, Sky After Dark in Australia is another, which basically will indulge any 
crazy point of view. I mean, yeah, sure, politically biased, that's one thing. I mean, Kevin Rudd complains about that and he's quite right to do so. But it's when you start getting into the loopy conspiracy theories, uh, you know, the denial of science and so forth, uh, that you're starting to do very, very serious damage. And there is a market for that. And so, you know, that's what they're that's what they're pursuing. Now, here's the problem, as I said. We've always assumed, as we justify free speech, First Amendment, and so forth, that in the marketplace of ideas, truth will prevail. Okay. Well, does it? <laughs> We're drowning in lies. So, so the so really, you have to hold. Uh, the media platforms that you know tell lies, support conspiracy theories, you know peddle quackery—you've got to actually hold them to account. Uh, and I think we're starting to do that more and more. I think what Kevin Rudd's done with Murdoch has been formidable. You know, for—I mean, I assume he's got a couple of uh, you know assistants helping him with it, but he—it's a—it's a—it's a really excellent campaign just of accountability. Uh, and that I think more is going to have to be done with advertisers as well, because you know you can't you can't any longer say that it isn't real. I mean, we we, we look. Let's you know people used to say, oh, you know, twenty five percent or thirty percent or whatever Americans think the moon landing was faked or Elvis is still alive or you know the Earth is flat or whatever. And you can just roll your eyes and say, oh, well, yeah, who cares? And it's not. But when they start believing that the president was not legitimate in the sense of not being born in America, with, as it was with Obama, which was untrue, or they believe this Democrat president, Biden, was not lawfully elected, which is also untrue, then you're starting to get real consequences. And it's not just a question of crazy ideas. So I think there's a... You know, this is a time to basically say uh, that we've got to hold publishers responsible for what they're doing, for the consequences of their falsehoods, and, you know, hold them to account. By all accounts, Rupert Murdoch loathes Donald Trump. And we saw after Biden was elected, we saw Fox News go into a bit of a slump and realign its output very much audience-driven. So part of the analysis is with Murdoch that it's all about business. But what's your perception of the mix between business and politics with Murdoch? Well, I, I don't have a perception. I've got a recollection. I've discussed Trump with Murdoch, um, and I wouldn't know that he loathes him. His added view of Trump, this is before Trump was president, as he expressed it to me, um, and Lucy in, in our flat in New York, he... Uh, he was, yeah, look, he disregarded Trump as being utterly unsuited to be president, you know, for all the obvious reasons. I mean, he was a, you know, a, a sort of a mountebank showman, you know, <laughs> I mean, just big narcissistic, you know, one-man PR machine, right? Uh, but uh, once Rupert thought that he could win, he got in and supported Trump to the hilt. And he, he basically saw that Trump was, was the avenue for two things, at least. One was much higher ratings for Fox, you know, so they liked that. And the other one was that it gave Murdoch access and influence. 
I mean, again, people, I think rational people who are commentators and, you know, writers, historians, fail to understand power and its allure. And they think that when people want power, they want it for instrumental reasons. Now, many, you know, some people do. You know, I, I think I always have. I've always been interested in it. When I've sought political office, I've always wanted to do things with it. I've never been, I guess, because I, you know, hung out with or worked with a lot of very powerful people in my youth. I've never been dazzled by power, right? I've never been particularly impressed by it. But most people are. Power, saying to someone like Murdoch, why do you want to be powerful? Why do you want the president to defer to you? Why do you want to always be able to get through to the Oval Office? It's like saying to someone, why do you want to have sex? It's an urge, you know. And, and so Trump, so Murdoch went in boots and all to put Trump in the White House. And in return for that, the deference Trump showed him was extraordinary. I mean, I've been with Trump and Murdoch. I have never seen any politician as deferential to Rupert as Trump was. You know, no Australian politician ever uh, at that deferential. Even even Abbott. I've been with Abbott and Murdoch and plenty of other politicians too, for that matter. But Trump was just all over him. And, and you could see it was absolutely so deferential. I mean, Trump, when I sort of met Trump, this was the first time I'd met him, you know, in person because we'd had that awkward, angry telephone call. Um, you know, Trump really, Trump, when we were due to have our one-on-one meeting, the leaders' meeting, Trump wanted Rupert to be in the room with us. And I said, oh, no, can't do that, you know. And But he really wanted him to be there. And I mean, maybe Murdoch was offended by the fact I just said, no, look, we can't do that. So it was just gives you an idea of how, you know, intimate and deferential that relationship was. And, of course, that's what, that's what Murdoch achieved. So this is the thing, you know, power, they say, people say power is an aphrodisiac and they often, it's, I don't think that's entirely wrong, but it's often misunderstood as though to say people will, you know, be attracted to other people who are powerful. But and that, that's, and that's true too. But, but the real thing is that a lot of people in business and in the media and, of course, in politics are drawn to power because it turns them on, right? And that is, and again, it's a, it's just, it's a thing. It's like, it's just, again, it's like saying to someone, why do you want to have sex? Well, you know, <laughs> it's a drive. You know, it's fundamental. Mr. Turnbull, I don't know if you saw it, uh, media analyst Margaret Simons, who's writing in the Inside Story magazine, the online magazine. Yeah. She spent many hours on our behalf, I guess, many hours watching Sky News Australia, especially their After Dark output, to assess whether we're heading into a Fox News-style information divide here in Australia. As you know, Sky News is going free-to-air in the regions starting right now. Now, Simons, at this point, anyway, from her watching, thought that was a premature call. What do you think? Are we heading to a Sky News a la Fox News here in Australia? Oh, I think that I think the answer is yes, but... Uh, and the because that that's that's the organisation the whole Murdoch you know organisation is heading in in that direction it's the foxification of uh, News Corp um, well but but I said but um, Australia is different thankfully uh, we do have a strong public broadcaster in the ABC and that is important 
you know, because the ABC is bound by statute to be accurate in its news reporting and to be fair and balanced in its opinion, you know, current what they call current affairs uh, coverage. Now, under the broadcasting standards, the commercial broadcasters are also obliged to be accurate in reporting the news, um, and they should separate uh, opinion and, you know, current affairs, if you like, uh, from news, but um, they don't have any obligation to be balanced. So, you know, within the broadcasting rules, you could be, you know, you could lean wildly off to the right or wildly off to the left. Uh, but the so I think having the, the ABC is is very important, and one of the most important things it's doing is making sure that it's it's reaching out through all the digital channels. You know, because the median age, for example, of, well, you could check, but a few you know a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, the median age of people who watched the seven o'clock news on the ABC was 61. So that's to say half the audience was older than 61. I suspect that figure's higher now. Um, one of the things I did when I was comms minister was ensure that a News Corp push that uh, did have some supporters in the cabinet uh, to prevent the ABC from having in its charter a commitment to digital uh, was was you know, fended off. And, um, and so, you know, I, I think that's, you know, that is the ABC has got to, just like any publisher, frankly, they've got to be able to get their message across on every platform. And, and you know, I think that by and large, they're doing that. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne with Margot Kingston in Comboy, New South Wales. Our guest, the 29th Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull. You say that the crazies are running the show on climate change, and I, I assume you would agree that corruption and a lack of accountability is, is, is really starting to embed. And you've got to. Well, I don't you know, know what you mean by that, Margaret, so I can't. I mean. Oh, sorry. I mean, I, I think there is a real issue. I think there is a real issue with the federal government at the moment about integrity. I don't know, you know, that I, I, I'd be careful about using the corruption word because it's so heavily loaded. Sorry, I, uh, I, I meant but, political but, but corruption. Is, yeah, I didn't mean, yeah. you know, brown paper envelopes. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the incredible expansion of the discretionary grants oh, yeah, yeah. to I, win I, I agree. I mean, I think... The, Look, you, the standards, everything's cabinet in confidence, so it can't be released. Yeah, I, that sort I, of thing. I, I, look, <laughs> when I was prime minister, I um, upheld the ministerial standards, and I dropped ministers when I felt they had breached them or were seen to have breached them. You know, and of course they <laughs> they hated me forever after. Of course, naturally, when you do that, um, which is probably why Morrison doesn't drop anyone. Uh, but the um, you know, I always thought one of the best um, questions Lee Sales has ever put was when she said to Josh Frydenberg, what do you have to do to get sacked from the Morrison government? <laughs> you could see Josh was, Josh was struggling for an answer. It was hard to think of what would actually constitute a sackable offence. But look, I, I, think, I think there is a, um, there is a sense 
in the government at the moment in a way, something that I see, I just can't believe the change has been so marked, but it is totally different from my government or Abbott's or Rudd's or Gillard's or Howard's. There is a sense of unaccountability. And I think this is partly because of the air cover they're given by the you know, the media, you know, might not just Murdoch, but generally, I think the media are pretty soft on the government. Um, in fact, the you know, the journalists who are who are being, um, I would think, most, you know, who are doing their job in the most um, resolute manner are by and large almost all women nowadays. It's a, it's a, they they don't they're not as uh, captivated by the Prime Minister's office as some of their male counterparts are. But the, the, this, the, the, there's just this sense of uh, unaccountability, invulnerability, and there is a feeling that there is a real sense in the community that there is a lack of integrity at the moment. And that is that in a way that I haven't seen with previous uh, governments, whether they're federal governments, whether they're Labor or Liberal. I watched Trump's rise for six years, you know, thinking it can't happen here, etc. But in the end, basically, the progressive voter, Republican voters did go across because they had some, some bottom lines. And the bottom lines, are, I think, in, in terms of a great majority of the public, they would like to restore integrity. They'd like a federal ICAC and they would like strong action on climate change. They're not getting it for all the reasons you've suggested. So what do they do? I, I find it extremely interesting that you and, and Kevin Rudd are taking the same platform on, Mur on Murdoch, on climate change and on our approach to China. Like, is this a time for the majority to find common ground and go with that while having major disagreements on other issues, particularly economic issues? Well, well, look, everyone wants to see, every voter wants to see more bipartisanship. Um, from a political point of view, um, politicians are always seeking to exacerbate, or not exacerbate, but exaggerate the differences. You know, product differentiation, everyone does it, whether you, you know, in, or whether they're saying oils ain't oils or you're selling, you know, breakfast cereals, right? So product differentiation does does result in some exaggeration. But I think, I mean, I've all, you know, I used, to, I was always being criticised for not being partisan enough by my own party. So I'm, I'm, I'm not a very partisan politician, I suppose, or ex-politician. Um, look, the, the reality, the risk that I think the Liberal Party faces um, is not so much from the Labor Party, because I, I don't find their counter, you know, their counter proposition that compelling. But I think the risk they face is from small L liberal independence, and the reason for that is that liberal traditional liberal voters in traditional liberal seats like Wentworth uh, or you know Warringah or Mayo, Indi, etc., if they keep on getting served up either liberal members or liberal governments that are, you know, that, that have, whose values are at odds with their own, they will look elsewhere. Now, they may not be prepared to vote for the Labor Party, but if there is a liberal independent who looks like the sort of person they would want to, would rather the Liberal Party pre-selected, they will vote for them. Now, there are three, you know, liberal independents in the parliament at the moment, Helen Haynes, Rebecca Sharkey and Zali Stegall, 
They're all in seats that had been hitherto absolutely rock-solid safe Liberal seats, sort of seats where, you know, barring some, ab, you know, uh, abnormality in, you know, the electoral climate, you the Liberal Party would spend hardly anything on, you know, just pay for some core flutes and how to votes and so forth. Uh, now, why are they there? Well, they're there because those people in those electorates were fed up with the Liberal member, Abbott, Jamie Briggs and Sophie Mirabella in Indi, uh, Jamie Briggs, of course, being in Mayo. And, and that's, that's really the main, that's the main reason. But there's also the issue of policy. Now, when I was leader, but while I was the leader of the Liberal Party and the Prime Minister, people could say, Malcolm represents, you know, those values and agendas and, you know, we can, we know he's, you know, he's battling with some of his colleagues, but, you know, he's at least, he's at least there having a go. Uh, now, if people feel those, that climate is not being taken seriously, uh, if integrity in government is not being taken seriously, and if the, they feel the Liberal Party has moved well away from the values they espouse, then I think they, they may end up voting against sitting Liberal MPs who are not necessarily, you know, at, you know uh, un, unattractive, aggressive, you know, right-wing personalities. I mean, you know, in, in other words, a small, a, a relatively mo a moderate Liberal incumbent, uh, I think is vulnerable in this environment because people will say, well, you, you know, Joe Blow, moderate Liberal MP, you are a good bloke uh, and, uh, you know, we know you'd like to do more, but you have no influence, you have no say, your voice is irrelevant. So sorry, why don't we just elect someone who maybe, whose values may be quite similar to yours, but who will be free to say what they like on the crossbench. And I think that's the, that's the risk. So, so the, and, and that's the big question, because remember, in all of these seats where smaller liberal independents have won, there has been a, you know, an unattractive, an electorally unattractive incumbent, you know, Briggs, Mirabella, Abbott. And even in Wentworth, where... Um, uh, you know, there was a, you know, the the Karen Phelps won in the by-election while Dave Sharma, I mean, Dave, no one knew who Dave Sharma was at that time, but uh, the the issue was a sort of, I think, you know, in large part a protest vote about, you know, my defenestration. Um, and uh, so, so there was something, it wasn't that there was a lot more than simply a protest against the Liberal government, but I think that's you know that that's that's the next bridge to well to see whether it can be crossed. Mr. Turnbull, this feels like a good moment just to explore with you for a few moments voting reform. Now I understand totally that voting doesn't equal democracy, but democracy without a decent voting system doesn't work very well. And in Australia, we don't have the primitive first-past-the-post voting system here, as they still do in the UK and the USA. We do have various versions of preferential and proportional voting, 
We have compulsory voting since early in the Federation, which I think served us pretty well. But the last West Australian state election, again, really highlighted that disconnect between the pan-electorate voting numbers and the actual number of seats for any one party in that parliament. For the Greens especially, that stood out. Would you support perhaps a fundamental reform in federal voting towards some version of a multi-member electorate akin to the New Zealand system to try to build in some more equitable representation in our parliaments? Uh, look, I, I wouldn't. Um, I think we've got proportional representation represented in the Senate voting system. Um, I mean, independents can win seats in the lower house and have been so doing so increasingly. Um, I, look, every voting system has got its drawbacks, right? I mean, you know, theoretically, if you have a parliament with uh, single-member constituencies like we do, uh, you could, you know, theoretically, if if the government wins a majority of seats, you know, with razor-thin majorities, you know, 50 and a 0.1%, and the opposition wins a fewer number of seats but with massive majorities, you know, with 75%, they could end up with more votes, a lot more votes, and fewer seats. Now, generally, uh, the party that wins the majority of seats in the House of Representatives has the majority of votes in the country. You know, there have been a couple of elections where it hasn't been like that, but there's not been, hasn't been anything so egregious. Although they faced that problem in South Australia, you know, where the Liberal Party, I think, had to win, you know, like, I don't know, 54 or 55% two-party preferred to actually get a majority of seats. So there are there are problems with single-member constituencies, but equally there's something to be said for the stability, <laughs> I use that term advisedly, uh, that a parliamentary system delivers. Look, I, I think what we've got works pretty well, um, but the... You know the say the saviour, I guess, uh, and this is where it's good to have two chambers because you get two bites of the cherry. Uh, is that we've got a Senate which is where there is, um, you know, proportional representation. Can I go back to these um, inner city Sydney seats? Yeah. Do you agree that the the ones in play would be Wentworth, North Sydney, and McKellar, all of which are held by Liberal moderates? on the back bench, who won't cross the floor on anything. In other words, won't blow the place up as the other side yeah. does. Yeah, I'm not um, close enough to the dynamics. I mean, I know the three members, you know, Jason Felinski, yep. Trent Zimmerman, are both uh, friends of mine. Yep. A, you know, Dave Sharma is a friend of mine, although I haven't known him for as long. Um, uh, but you're right, they're moderates, but they're certainly not going to cross the floor or, you know, Blow the, threaten to blow the joint up the way the right do. Um, are they vulnerable? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I think it you, you couldn't really say unless you knew who the, uh, you know, in, if there is going to be a, a Liberal independent candidate, who that person would be. Uh, they'd obviously got to be someone with a pretty high... Pre they've either got to have a pretty high profile to begin with or the ability to create one very quickly, and of course the election's not that far away. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be. Uh, I'm sure that the three members we're talking about would be very 
aware of this risk, but I wouldn't be putting them in the, uh, you know, highly risky basket uh, anytime soon. I feel, having been in the gallery under Keating and and Howard, that we seem to have produced a, a dearth of, of talent, of intelligent, policy-driven, values-based people who want to go into politics. I just wonder whether the system has developed to, in such a way, for all the factors you've, you've said, that it's not attractive to the people we, we need anymore. I don't know. Where, I just don't know whether it's right yeah. because we, we do tend to look at politicians of past years possibly through rose-tinted glasses, you know, and remember the good things about them and overlook the bad things. Um, well, Malcolm, I, I was I, a Howard hater, but, you know, I knew what he stood for and he got yeah. good things done. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, well, well, the, um, I was, <laughs> I was talking to a member of this government the other day and I said, so what are you, you know, what are the things that you're most proud of in terms of reforms? And um, the only thing he mentioned that wasn't something that had been carried over from my government was the shakedown of Google and Facebook. So... Uh, that was whether you're proud about that. Apparently, he was. That uh, uh, didn't seem a lot from three years. But um, look, I, I, I think you've got a couple of problems. Um, politics has been professionalised. Um, you know, there are not many people, or not nearly enough people, that go into the parliament on either side with a life's experience outside of politics. Um, and if you go through the cabinet, you'll find most of the people in there have been in politics one way or another their whole lives. Uh, when I used to sit in the New South Wales press gallery in the state parliament in the mid-70s when, you know, Neville Rand was the premier, although, I mean, Eric, Lew uh, Eric uh, no, Tom Lewis was the first premier I covered and then Eric Willis and then Neville, um, the Labor members were over, you know, overwhelmingly trade union officials formerly, but they were horny-handed sons of toil. I regret mm. to say they were almost all sons of toil as opposed to daughters of toil, but they were bricklayers and, you know, train drivers and, you know, boiler makers and all that sort of stuff. Nowadays, you do the trade union officials, former officials that are in the federal parliament are university-educated men and women who've gone to work for the union as opposed to coming up through the shop floor. Uh, so there isn't a, you know, the, that's why I, in one of the jibes I used to fling across to the Labor Party, uh, I used to sometimes remind them that in the modern Labor Party, manual labor was a Mexican bandit. Um, they, um, they, it's not a, it's, it's just, it's a different world. Now on our side, um, well, you look at the National Party. How many farmers are there in the National Party? The answer is not many. They used to be all. They used to be all cockies, uh, uh, and the increasingly, you know, and that, and you see that on our side too, on the Liberal Party side as well. So, so I think that is a that's that 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 is a that's a real that's a real problem. Uh, it's. Um, I mean, you know, polit look, politics is a politics is a tough business. A lot of people look at the horror. That politicians go through and say, "Oh my God, I couldn't put myself through that. I couldn't put my family through it. Um, it's uh, it isn't easy." So, 
But I, I agree. I think the I, th I don't think there are enough people with a broader experience of life in the parliament. I when I was there, I I was I think I could be I was right in saying there were more of them that ticked that box on the liberal side of the house and the Labor side. But I'm not sure whether that's still true. I know a couple of like amazing women who would have loved to have gone to politics, but tried and just very quickly thought, I, I, I am not going to, I can't play that game to get pre-selected. And I, I just wonder whether this Voices for movement, you know, where, you know, people are trying to, you know, get together across, across party colours to sort of, mm. you know, find a, a community independent that actually represents that seat, whether that's a possibility for the future to, to bring talent in. I'm aware of the destabilisation potential of, of independence, but I just well, wonder I, whether I, this face-to-face well, -face thing might, might sort of Margo, be... don't, don't, listen, don't, I'm not suggesting that independence destabilise the parliament. I mean, the, uh, the look at the, in, the instability in the parliament during the period of the coalition government has, has come entirely from inside the coalition party room. Yes. I mean, Barnaby Joyce is the great destabiliser in the Nationals, George Christensen, you know. Um, you had an Ab Abbott. <laughs> Abbott himself. I mean, honestly, the these so the, the idea that, that, you know, party government leads to stability, uh, that's not right. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get enormous instability. Um, I think that, you know, there, there is the Liberal Party has to be very alert, acutely alert to the fact that the three people who have won safe Liberal seats and held them as Liberal independents are smaller Liberals, yep. uh, progressive on social issues, progressive on climate or rational on climate, and women. Uh, now, you know, that's those are the sort of people that by and large are not getting pre-selected in the Liberal Party. And that's the and so that is what you see in uh, those electorates is the Liberal Party, you know, residents, voters saying, well, if the Liberal Party is not going to pre-select somebody that, you know, represents my values, I'll just look around and see if there's a candidate that does. Oh, there she is. That's good. I'll vote for her. And that's it. And I mean, and that's the so so I think the and, and I think, you know, there is another argument and this is another point that. One of the problems in the party at the moment is that it is no longer fairly described as a broad church. In the I mean, this is and this is less this is less true as a criticism in New South Wales and elsewhere. But essentially, what's happened is the right has taken over most of the Liberal Party and certainly at the federal level, and. The moderates, as we've discussed, are not prepared to throw the toys out of the pram, so they get rolled over consistently. They don't have, you know, big sort of prominent figures leading their side of the uh, party room anymore. And the, you know, there is, <laughs> there's a lot of people that would say the moderate liberals would be better off having a, a liberal liberal party and being in their own party room and being in coalition because uh, in the way the Nats are. So the, you know, this is, this, is why, this is the criticism that many people, I mean, Brandis used to make this point very forcefully, many people were, why they were critical of the merger of the Liberal and National Parties in Queensland, 
because the mm. Liberal Party in Queensland, which was generally a more liberal uh, political movement, Always. has basically been swamped by the Nats. So the essentially the right wing of the Queensland Liberal Party, uh, you know, merged, caused the Liberal Party to merge with the National Party, and you ended up with a much more right wing LNP. And of course, that that then because Queensland's a big state and has a lot of seats. Uh, that has a big impact on the coalition party room. Sometimes I think this voices for grassroots thing, oh, you know, the theory of community engagement or whatever, is sort of like a a grassroots way to have a breakaway true Liberal Party. That it's sort of rather than coming from you know the top down under um, Don Chip, it, it sort of seems to be rising up. It could develop into that. I mean, political parties are valuable because they give you a brand uh, and they, you know, they mean that a new candidate doesn't have to introduce themselves, you know. So, you know, there are people that will vote for the Liberal candidate regardless of yep. who it is and, you know, or the Labor candidate. I mean, less so, I think. But so I think that's, you know, Liberal political parties have a value as organisation, theoretically quality control, although that's a bit questionable. Um, but... Uh, so yeah, I mean, it may be that the at some point in the future, if there were more uh, smaller liberal independents, that they said, well, why don't we all, why don't we have some kind of a party structure? But I think, I think, I think you'd find that um, they some of them may well say, well, no, the we'd want to, any association we had would be one. We wouldn't want to do something that would impinge on our. Of course, independence because that that independence is very, is very uh, is very important. I mean, you know, Zali Stegel is a is a you know I think is a classic example. I mean, yep. Zali Stegel. I mean, I've been involved in a lot of Liberal Party pre-selections, one way or another, over the years. Zali Stegel is the sort of person that the Liberal Party, when it was more of a Liberal Party would have pre-selected in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. If she applied, they'd go, oh, fantastic, that's great, that's it, you know. And and so there are people in Warringah that would look at her and say, she's much more of a conventional Liberal Party candidate than, you know, this wild-eyed guy Abbott, you know, with all of his, you know, ideological hang-ups and culture wars and so forth. So... Uh, the, you know, it, 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 I, I think the if if you know, if you are running as an independent in a liberal safe liberal seat, you you basically want to you obviously want to look like a someone who can represent the values and aspirations of your electorate. If you look like some kind of alien, uh, they're not going to vote for you. And also, given you know that. Uh, liberalism, moderate liberalism, has been basically expelled from the power centre. What a way to get a liberal voice back, like Zali's voice, Helen's voice. Margot, the argument against independence is that they sit on the cross bench, they don't have any power. You know, they're just you know just shouting into the wind, right? Obviously, uh, if you get a hung parliament, that is absolutely not the case. <laughs> you know, that they then they then are incredibly powerful. But I think the problem that the moderates 
have, and this is true for Tent, Trent and Jason and, you know, and uh, Dave Sharma here in Wentworth and, you know, even, you know, Fletcher and um, Bradfield. The problem that they have is that people will say, yeah, okay, you're inside the room, but we still don't have a commitment to net zero by 2050. You know, we're still engaged in these sort of crazy culture wars. Um, what 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 use are you? Mm. You know, and this is the and th- this is this this is the problem because you see what the right do is they say to their supporters, if the government doesn't do what we want, we'll cross the floor, we'll blow the joint up. But you know, the moderates are too too well behaved, uh, and I'm not suggesting they should be less behaved. I mean, I look, it's a real problem because the uh, you know the if if we go to uh, Glasgow with our climate policy essentially being dictated by Barnaby Joyce, uh, you don't have to be a political genius to write the, uh, you know, the attack lines for those who want to overthrow some very decent, honourable, you know, liberal, liberal moderates. And that's, and that is the risk. That's, you know, that that's the risk they run. And so the, the dynamics of the Liberal Party is that Morrison assumes that the moderate liberal voters in those inner city electorates, and bear in mind he was born in Wentworth, so he grew up in Bronte, you know, yep. the Sutherland Shire is a yep. recent acquisition. He he understands and his assumption is that the liberal voters in those electorates will, you know, hold their nose and vote for the Liberal Party, even though they don't agree with a lot of its policies. And he, you know, he he's a he, the one thing you can't fault Morrison for is tactics. His, his fault is that he's all tactics, but he certainly, uh, that's, that's, all, that's what he's done his whole life, political tactics. I think you'd agree now that climate change has become a matter of conscience. You're a member of the Liberal Party. Would you vote for a strong, moderate, liberal, independent in Wentworth, or do you feel that you have to stick with the Libs? And- I, I, I'll res- I'm a member of the Liberal Party. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, and I'll, you know, I'm, I don't have any plans to resign from the Liberal Party or anything like that. But, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out any course of action. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens, you know. But I'm, I'm a, I'm not an actively, I'm not an active in politics. Um, I'm retired from part, you know, from politics. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't rule anything in or out, but I certainly think the, uh, I'm not involved in any of the voices for campaigns or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, I do think we've, that the, the, there is no question that those moderate liberals in, you know, those, those city seats are very are potentially very vulnerable, and of course, it's all it, it will all depend yep. on the zeitgeist at the time. It'll depend who the candidate is. Hugely, uh, yeah, hugely. I mean, when I say hugely, that's probably eighty percent of what it yep. depends on. So, um, and then comes funding. Mm. Like you know, last election, Clive Palmer spent eighty million dollars, you mm. know, to secure his mining interests. I suppose, or maybe he's just a bit mad now. I don't know. Do you think there will be an effort for wealthy progressives to, to, to start getting involved in, in 
in funding um, uh, good independent ca- – in, in other words, are well, we going I, to Americanise yeah. a little bit? You know what I mean well, in terms of the big money comes in all sides? Or Well, I, I think the – look, the, the Liberal Party, the incumbent parties have a huge um, – advantage because of yep. their incumbency you know they've got money they're raising money all the time um so yeah so they've got a big advantage um and having said that zali did attract quite a bit of money from uh you know well-heeled progressive voters in in Warringah. um i don't know what sort of financial backing karen phelps had in wentworth i just don't know i think she funded uh, her own campaign did she? I, I, I don't know, Margot. She, you, you may know more than me. I haven't ever looked into it. But, but I look. I think there will be. Um, I mean, Lucy and I supported um, Kirsty O'Connell in the Upper Hunter by election because she was an independent running against the National Party, which I noticed there were John Barillara was demanding I be expelled from the Liberal Party. But he seemed to overlook. There's nothing in the Liberal Party constitution that says you have to support National Party candidates. I mean, that <laughs> Indeed. that that would be that would be a bridge too far. There's certainly nothing in the National Party constitution that says you have to support Liberals. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I think uh, you know, I think they'll attract. But again, that's why the the personality and you know, of so forth of the candidate is important. But you see. Um, the, the the argument, I mean, the argument is w- with Abbott was like, was very clear, you know, was it vote Tony out or time's up Tony or whatever the message was. It was very personal and there was this massive vote that just, that, that just wanted to be shot of him. And you could say, you know, by contrast in Wentworth, the big vote for Karen at the by-election was people saying they were cross at being shot of me. You know, they were cross at what was done to me. That's so, true, so, Malcolm. But so, gee, she she kept a seat marginal. Wasn't clear no, no, whether or not no, she no. kept a few, didn't she? No, she did. She did. I'm just saying. But so they were. I'm just saying there were those personal factors. Yeah, sure. So, so you don't have. I don't think anyone in North Sydney hates Trent Zimmerman or Jason Falinski in McKellar, let alone Dave Sharma in Wentworth. So the 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 real question is: Can a smaller Liberal independent win in a seat where the sitting member is not in and of themselves a lightning rod. And we don't know the answer to no. that. But but I, I think obviously, as I said, it'll depend very much on the um on the individual. Now, you can of course get members, local members, you know, very controversial, very polarizing, but they may poll it but as long as they've got enough people on their side of the poll, um they can hang on there. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people in New England that can't stand Barnaby Joyce, but I suspect for all of his loopiness and, you know, meandering uh, <laughs> ravings in the House of Representatives, like the one he did the other day that def- des- defied even the ability of the Hansard writers to turn into English, um, I think there's, you know, I think he would be hard to, to toss out. Having said that, if you had a, you know, a, a someone with... Uh, you know, strong local connection, high profile. Maybe they could uh, they could beat him. It's a it it in a sense in those seats the you, you, there's a sort of a sweet spot. You, I mean, independents are not a threat in marginal seats. Uh, they are a threat to the you know non labour side of politics, 
uh, in a safe seat, but one that is not so safe that, you know, the, the sort of liberal or national vote is just, you know, primary vote of 60% or something like that. You basically need to be somewhere where the Labor vote is, you know, around at least 20%. Yep. Uh, and so that the independent can uh, take some of the national or liberal members' vote and fin- and a bit of Labor and a bit of a bit elsewhere and finish ahead of yep. ahead of Labor so that they can then win on on two party preferred. So that's the that is the that's the that's the area of risk. So, you know, I mean, someone like Angus Taylor, if there was a, you know, really compelling candidate in Hume, I think he could be he could be at risk because uh, you know, there's a there'd be a lot of people that would be very disappointed with him, I would think, in that suit. But he may well have some very devoted admirers too. I remember the the last election. There was a big push to see if Fiona Simpson would stand in against Barnaby, like you know, yeah. former head of the NFL. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, yeah. And you just think it's got to. She's embedded. She's many generations there as a farmer, and it's it's that star, that absolute yeah. quality, and and to to talk people who've got a life into taking all that on. Mm. It's it's a big step, isn't it? <laughs> it's just a bit. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know Fiona very well, and she's a she's just fantastic. Uh, yeah, she would be a huge asset in the parliament, whether she was liberal, national, independent, Labor, Calathumpian, wouldn't matter. She's just a person. She's one of the best, most capable leaders, uh, you know, in Australia. I mean, I've got I, I've worked closely with her, uh, and I I have just have unbounded admiration for her. And interestingly, a similar. I'm um, look. Listen, I don't think this. I don't think she's got any plans to run for power. No, no, me neither. <laughs> but but I think. But she remind. She's a. She you know. Kathy McGowan had a similar background. Exactly. Kathy wasn't. It was never head of the NFF, but she was a very prominent in a women's farmers movement. Four and, generations uh, dairy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, now she's very. She she's she's got her roots in the soil there. Yep. This is the end of part one of a two-part extended conversation with former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, Margot Kingston and me. In part two, we discuss the Morrison government's COVID vaccine rollout and quarantine recalcitrance, climate change, China, Taiwan, the USA democracy and more. Mr Turnbull's memoir is titled A Bigger Picture and there's a link to it with the on-screen text for this podcast plus some other links to useful resources about democracy if you'd like to delve more deeply after hearing our discussion today. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Transit Zone. Zone.